0: and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of September 8th, 2014. Join us this week as we visit again with Emma Roberts, rare books librarian at the Los Angeles Public Library, as part of an ongoing guided tour of some of the gems in her care. We'll also talk with Richard Adkins, past president of Hollywood Heritage, about how a series of owners have preserved and maintained the landmark Grauman's Chinese Theater. So stay tuned. (music)
1: Los Angeles.
0: El Pueblo, Lotus Land, the City of Angels.
1: The Day of the Locust, the slide area, where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear.
0: But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix.
1: They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main.
0: As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway.
1: Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city.
0: Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules.
1: Rainer Banham said that.
0: He taught us well.
1: In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation.
0: Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia.
1: Positive public space Endangered landmarks Forgotten lore
0: Memory maps Mysteries Murder
1: The allocation of resources
0: The hidden forces that shape public policy Skid Row Bunker Hill
1: Preservation
0: Restoration
1: Redevelopment It's
0: a four-letter word
1: Los Angeles You can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look
0: And listen to the stories
1: And pass them on Why are we
0: doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason
1: So did Raynor Banum.
0: So he did. Now let's begin.
2: You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood, called Hermina between Gold mine of fabulous aunties yes. like Ring Shears Dairy and savvy boxing boy Indeed. in Downey Forest Lawn Cemetery. You can't eat the sunshine, but make a beeline For la la la. You can't eat the sunshine, sunshine, sunshine.
1: Welcome everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of September 8th, 2014. This episode, we have interviews with Emma Roberts. She is the Rare Books Librarian at the Los Angeles Public Library, and we will be looking at some more gems that she pulled out to show us from that collection, which, of course, anyone who has a Los Angeles Public Library library card can go in and make a, an appointment and go do that, too. So that's why we did this, to get people to the Rare Books collection, because it is a great collection. We're also going to talk with Richard Adkin. Richard Adkin is former president for Hollywood Heritage, and we are going to talk about Grauman's Chinese Theater, which now the proper title is TLC Chinese... TCL. T- TCL Chinese Theater, and the point of this interview is to just get a brief survey of the changes to Grauman's Chinese and confirm with him that the integrity of, of Grauman's is is intact, despite all these name changes and the... So we're just... We're checking in with Grauman's, which is an important, iconic Los Angeles landmark. And we're just making sure, getting the temperature and making sure that we can walk away and not fret over it. So so we'll, we'll move into all of that. Kim, you are the Pishka Maven.
0: I am, and that means it's time for me to tell you that if you like this podcast and all of the great stories that we bring you from the Southland and you'd like to help contribute to our work, you can go to the podcast page and make a donation via PayPal. And we are always so grateful for our listeners who choose to contribute in this way. It is never obligatory, but deeply appreciated. Thank you for listening and for your support.
1: All right, Kim. Thank you. That was nice. Let's move into closely watched trains. Our first closely watched train is the 1925 Hall of Justice uh, Allied Architects and Associates is the was the the architect for the a What? Who is
0: that?
1: What You're looking at me. Allied okay, Allied Associates Allied Architects Associates was this consortium of architects who bid for county and municipal architecture jobs. Okay, and they're the ones that bid, and the county gave them the job. Okay, anyone we've uh, ever
2: heard
1: of? You know, it's I'm 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 hesitant to attach names to it because anyone that looks were anyone that looks into the the architecture firm and 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 Clifford Clinton is going to find some interesting things. So we're just we're going to leave that as a thought exercise.
0: Ah, uh, they were crooked. Yeah, I get it. Architecture by committee. It's it's a damn fine building. It works for me. I'm sure there was a lot of graft attached, but it's still standing and. And it's and it's coming back, right?
1: Hall of Justice is coming back. Just some some th- some takeaways from this watch train. Um, the, the, the Northridge quake closed it. Um, there was a, sur- a report done just uh, t- about two years after the quake, maybe even a little less, and they found it was the costs were. Well under $10 dollars $10 to restore it. I'm thinking maybe six, about six million dollars to restore it. And of course they waited, and the, the 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 rehabilitation bill to get it to open is was now like thirty million dollars. So so if they'd if, if if the board of supervisors had acted, they would have saved a lot of money, and this really important building would have been open so, But that's behind us what is in front of us is a soft opening of October 8th to open the Hall of Justice now kim hold on a second just to bring everyone up to speed this is not the Hall of Justice of days of old the hall of justice of days of old uh, the top floors where you have these those where you can which you can are delineated by the the in in place uh, Corinthian columns those were the jail cells um, those were the 12th, 13th, and 14th floors. There was a nice rooftop. Yeah, un- unclear what, 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 what's going to happen to the rooftop. Um, below the 12th floor, uh U.S. attorney had an office on the 11th floor. Robert O'Meyer had his office there. Um, going down, you had uh, office of the sheriff. The district attorney had an office, I believe on the 6th floor. Uh, and These, these changed. These are not hard and fast, but just to give you a sense, district attorney's offices were in the Hall of Justice. Some of the Board of Supervisors were, were in the Hall of Justice. Um, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the people to send me emails to tell me how wrong I am, but, but they're, they're over, over the course of 30 years, there have been records of that. Uh, most salient aspect, though, of the Hall of Justice for me was the, the coroner's office, the morgue, which was in the basement, which is no longer there.
0: Well, I mean, there's still a basement, but it doesn't. They they gutted it. They did. There's a lot missing, but they've held on to a few historic elements, including um, a jail cell that apparently Charlie Manson spent some time in. So there's uh, definitely an interest in uh, celebrating the history of this space, and I understand some documentations being produced, some visual elements. So go to the soft opening, or get yourself in there later in the year. Well, there well, will be there will. Well, so, ah, yes? Okay,
1: so. We'll take this in stride. We'll start with your last comment. So I am, I am making phone calls and making waves and trying to get someone. It looks like the district attorney's office is probably is proving to be the most um, receptive because the district attorney's office apparently is in charge of the history section um, in 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 the reception area. So they're they're in charge of sh- the, the sheriff's department is not taking the lead on this, so I'm going to work with them. It's still unclear. Uh, so the real challenge to a free lava walkthrough of the ground floor of the Hall of Justice, oh, the, the, real, the real challenge, and this is, a, this is an open, no one knows the answer to the question yet, uh, the, the, the challenge is going to be, is the building going to be open on Sundays? So will it, will it just be a triviality? To have someone come down and meet us and give us a walkthrough, or is, is opening on Sunday going to be this, this Herculean effort requiring, you know, overtime, which of course will never happen. So that question will be answered in the coming weeks, and we will keep you posted. It's a really important building. Um, I'll go back. I'll I'll, I'll I'll backtrack for a second to follow up on some things you said, Kim. But before I forget, because I was just looking at a glass plate negative this of this at. UCLA Special Collections a few days ago, um, you know, in the ground floor of the Hall of Justice, the salient aspect of the ground floor were the female vendors that had the, the carts, and and um, I've, I've, I've talked to, to members of the Sheriff's Department who said old-timers swore that these women, who were just just drop-dead gorgeous. they said these women could sell a pack of smokes to Jesus Christ. <laughs>
0: Let's bring that back.
1: Okay, and also, and because oh, because I just was looking at this a few days ago, um, er, Errol Flynn <laughs> spent oh, okay. some time at, at the Hall of Justice. She
0: looked eighteen.
1: She wasn't eighteen, and um, she wasn't eighteen, and she was connected to members of the. Who, who, people who 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 were on the county payroll, so it it became very interesting um so these these women were no- notorious and there so there you go, um, and don't forget the women's auxiliary who would um, sometimes raise funds on the steps of the hall of justice, not in the lobby because that was a concession that was locked down, but the women's sheriff's auxiliary wives. And and female employees of the sheriff's department would do charitable fundraisers occasionally on the on the steps, and I, th- I think Earl Flynn got into some trouble with that too. But <laughs> okay, jail, Hall of Justice jail. People like this, so I'm just going to linger for another second. Men's Central Jail, current location behind Union Station. That opens 63. You mentioned Charles Manson. Okay, what year did Charles Manson begin his killing spree?
0: Nineteen
1: sixty nine. Okay, so Men's Central Jail. But
0: he never killed anyone.
1: Okay, you Thank you. So the um helter skelter thing started in in, in the late '60s, and the tate Bianca murders, perpetuated by a, gr- a fo- by his followers. Give give us a date on that.
0: August first week of August, nineteen
1: sixty nine. Okay, so Hall of uh, Men's Central Jail opens in '63. Why is Charles Manson at the Hall of Justice, right? Because the Hall of Justice jail at that point really begins to be
0: High-profile case. Right.
1: Sirhan Sirhan, Charles Manson, these are all high-profile cases. So the men's central jail is open and functional and full and, and, and very busy, but still into the late 1970s, um, you have clear, there's clear evidence of the the men's jail in the Hall of Justice.
0: Yeah, which is why they can say something like, "This is the cell Charles Manson was in," and actually be accurate. Because in in these regular jails, you know, people are going in and out of those cells all the time, and there's no real sense of a single person being associated with it. But but these were these were VIP holding cells, and uh, they kept them. So that's the sort of thing that is valued as history. And uh, maybe maybe uh, you'll come on a free walking tour at some point, and we'll lock you in. Stay yeah. tuned
1: so i 'm going to let everyone know what my, my 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 meditations are on this because thoughts have wings so Daniel Ellsberg was held in the jail on the upper floors of the of the HOJ right. and Robert L. Meyer walked upstairs and released him with two u s marshals because he told Richard Nixon that the Pentagon Papers event was not an indictable offense, a criminal offense. So he could not, with good conscience, as the U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California, hold him. And, and he was released. So I'm hoping that in our tour, Daniel Ellsberg might come down and meet us. And he, he, he could talk about his, his, his incarceration in the, in the old HOJ.
0: Well, if not Daniel Ellsberg, maybe a Daniel Ellsberg Muppet.
1: you got to have a dream to have a dream come true, Kim. you got to have a dream have a dream come true. Speaking of dreams in downtown, Kim, kids frolicking in playgrounds, state-of-the-art, soft, cushiony fabric, geodesic domes, rings, slides, shade trees. It's all happening.
0: You gotta have a dream to have a dream come true, right? Okay, so there's this... There's this foundation that donates money to small nonprofits and community groups under the banner of LA 2050, and it actually kind of depresses me every time this happens because everybody I know starts basically begging for money, and they're all begging for money for these projects that are supposed to cost $100,000 because that's how much the grant is, and it's all through social media, so they put their packages together like, vote for me, vote for me, you can't vote for everybody. And in, in my mind, a $100,000 project is actually too big to mean anything and too small to mean anything. It's, it's a lot of money for a small group of people, but at the same time, uh, I mean, it's just, it, it's not a sweet spot. And some of these projects come out and you're just like, Really? That's what you're asking for. You can kind of, you can, you can read a lot into these projects, and in some cases, they're honestly not great. And in the case of what the Pershing Square Park Advisory Board came out with, it's just so not great that I think I want to shine a light on it, even though part of me says, I don't even want to tell you about it because please don't vote for this crazy thing. Not that they're going to get any votes. Well, not a lot for this. $100,000, which is not enough money to polish a new playground, much less build one. The Pershing Square Park Advisory Board, who. Uh, let me,
1: uh, how much did the playground at Grand Park cost, just okay. to give us a baseline?
0: They're building a really cool park uh, playground. It's going to be a million bucks. Yeah. A million. The Pershing Square Park Advisory Board is the small group of downtown insiders who are really. These
1: are, these, are, these are not insiders. This is the boringest committee you could ever possibly attend in your life. And I and I'm so glad I don't go to these meetings because nothing happens, and they've been trying to raise grant money for this for five years, and God bless them. But I just don't think this. The Parks and Recs has pledged a matching grant of a hundred thousand dollars. I just don't think this playground is going to take off, mostly because all the interest for Pershing Square immediately be is is not a playground, but taking down these walls. So I I think it's there's just going to be this.
0: Well, when I say insiders, I mean, it's a group of people who really don't want to hear from the public. It's people from the bid, former bid head, people from the neighborhood council, the woman who runs the park, the people who think it's a great idea to have the park be closed for long sections of the summer while they prepare for two hour free concerts that are corporately funded. And so the park just becomes essentially a a bunch of fences covered in black plastic that people pee on. I mean, they're, they're, The way that they maintain the park as it is right now is really sad and pathetic. So, and if you try to go to these meetings, it's very, very hard to communicate with them. They actually don't bring in chairs for the public. For a while, Richard was going to these meetings and trying to videotape them and share them with the community because that was the only way to actually see their agendas. It's just sad. It's sad that Pershing Square, one of the original, actually, one of the two original public spaces granted to the city of Los Angeles in perpetuity in Spanish days. Uh, has fallen so far. and We've written a lot about it. So the notion of getting $100,000 to do something in Pershing Square, the idea that they came up with is to take the south portion of the park, which is the only place where there are trees left, even though the trees have been heavily trimmed, so people who have nowhere to go sit under this kind of spotty shade and, and rest during the day. Homeless people, people who live in the um, single-room occupancy hotels and don't have air conditioning, people who really have... Not a whole lot of options for using public space in the city. They want to take this entire section of the park and make this the centerpiece of their playground zone. They want to knock down the southern walls, um, which I think is hundred plus thousand dollars easy, just there, and put in a playground for older kids and younger kids. And they say it'll take six to nine months. I say... That's uh, six to nine months plus of getting rid of the people that um, Louise Capone, who runs the park and sits on this Pershing Square Park Advisory Board, has made very clear she doesn't want in her park. She thinks of it as her park. And the city of L.A. has actively been working to install parks in underserved communities very, very close to where sex offenders live in order to force sex offenders out of their homes. And that's happened down in Wilmington. And I know that that's on the radar of the people who uh, advocate for playgrounds and parks, because I've heard people talking about it like it's a really great thing. And at some point, you know, people who are on these lists aren't going to have anywhere to go. I'm not saying having sex offenders in the park is a great thing necessarily. But at the same time, is this the best use of grant money for the city of LA to just, you know, basically force some sad guys who sit around all day out of the shade and build what is almost certainly an unbuildable park for kids who don't exist? I say no. I say restore Pershing Square to the original 1910 design created by the great John Parkinson. That's what we're advocating for, and that's a vision for Pershing Square I can get behind. Playground? No.
1: So, Kim, just having recently attended a Parks and Rec Commission meeting, which was most illuminating, I'm, I'm here to tell you that those, those who care should look at the policy direction Parks and Rec is taking on industrial spaces like Wilmington and parks, because it's, it's a lot more complicated. I, I agree that a side effect of parks going into Wilmington is that it has repercussions on registered sex offenders who are living in single-room occupancy hotels uh, in Wilmington, which um, up until the moment they're told there might be a problem seems to them a really good place to live because it's Wilmington. Um, there's, a, there's a larger policy directive with Parks and Rec to bring green space into Wilmington. And I think for a park a little smaller than the size of of a, of a, of a baseball playing field, they're looking at price tags of $20 million because of groundwater contamination and soil contamination. And they're just, like, you listen to these reports and you're just thinking, oh, my God, this is like a nightmare. And why isn't Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Railroad, why isn't Union Pacific, why aren't these companies, I mean, these are huge problems.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, when you're talking about a you know, basically a brownfield, that's a very different situation. But everything's expensive now, especially with city workers and... What's going to happen to Pershing Square is really important. We'll just wait and see. Meanwhile, a block away, the Spring Street Park is just about a year old. That's a park that was opened um, on publicly purchased land, and it was rushed open because Mayor Villaragosa wanted to open this park before he left. They didn't have any funding in place. But what they did have was a small community group, which actually includes some of the same people who sit on the Pershing Square Park Advisory Board, people who really want to have their fingers in all the new green space around downtown, And all the old grade space downtown. And they said, Oh, we're the friends of Spring Street Park. We're forming a nonprofit. We're going to raise money. We're going to run this park. We're going to staff this park. We're going to maintain this park. All they actually ended up doing was um, taking these creepy, stalkery photos of people with their dogs and putting them on a website and saying, This man who lives in such and such a building put his doggy on the fenced off area and his doggy went doo doo. Isn't that awful? Well, that website got taken down, but they never actually raised any money, and people are all over the downtown L.A. Facebook page complaining about how disgusting and filthy the park is and the way that they commemorated the anniversary was posting photos of when it opened and how beautiful it looked at the time. So parks are tricky, folks, but I don't think public-private partnerships are the way to go, and I don't think um, raising money for playgrounds that are going to cost a heck of a lot more money than $100,000 $200,000 is the way to go either. But there are things you can do, More trees would be a start.
1: Okay, Kim, so we're going to move on, but I want to give everyone a a takeaway because you really sort of ran all over the place with this one as we're, is our prerogative in the watch train section, closely watch train section. But the, the takeaway for this discourse, those who attend committee meetings that are so boring you wish you were anywhere else, those who attend these meetings get things done. Okay, And this is a huge problem because these committee meetings are, one, really boring, two, very inconvenient to most normal human beings' work schedules, and three, you have to interact with people there, and it's impossible to get anything done. So and and, what, and
0: you have to interact with people who are, frankly, in the case of the Pershing Square Park Advisory Board, hostile about you being there. There will be no chairs for you, so bring a folding chair.
1: No, Kim, if you're, actually, if you're actually on the committee, you get a chair. If you, oh, if, you, if, you, if you on the committee. Right. Those who attend, those who sit on committees and attend committee meetings get things done. So this is a problem because, because empathic, caring people are at work. And those who are fortunate enough to be writing computer code to write better network, uh, social media apps to get the word out about fucked up things in the world, those who are at home writing their tour books or novels or uh, advocating for social change, don't have time to go to these committee meetings. So these committee meetings are left to functionaries of elected officials who are paid to attend them. So these committee meetings inherently are only attended by people who, in my opinion, are ill-qualified to give direction to these committees, but they're the only people on them. So everyone should meditate. On that, and this is the challenge with working with um, government, and I, I believe that that's um, that's going to be the big the big challenge of the 21st century. And we're going to move on to complain more about public private partnerships in the form of the streetcar. But really, Kim, we're just going to say that and move on to the interesting part. There's an article in the Downtown News last week about the streetcar for Broadway, and they've cut costs by 50 million dollars. It was Downtown News. Okay. Yes, I, re- I read it. I, I, okay, whatever. Like, so it's okay. We'll, I
0: to read it on Curbed. The comments on Curbed have gotten right, so great. Right. People are so educated now about what's going on in the city. I, I really like seeing what okay. they have to say. So,
1: right, and this is the point of bringing this up. I'm, I'm not interested in talking about the new streetcar plan, which will go on Ninth and cost fifty million dollars less because Adele Yellen is gonna gonna put out hula girls. To, to make everyone want to get on, on, on the trains more. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the comments that were in the curb thread. I'm interested in the side effect. And, and, and what's interesting is that you read these comments, you, you think back and you think back to 2008, 2009. No one was saying stuff like this in, in the comment threads. And it's so great that consciousness is being brought downtown. And you're getting really intelligent comments like, you know, downtown is changing so much. The notion of putting in this rigid, fixed transportation system based on someone's fantasy of what people really want to do and where they want to go downtown is ridiculous. You just need to put more dash buses and have them run on the weekends. And if you actually just had dash buses running till 11 o'clock at night and running on the weekends, people would actually use them and get around. And then maybe in 10, 15 years, once downtown actually starts to hit, settle. you, You could actually start to think about permanent public transportation solutions downtown.
0: Absolutely. And and because, you know, you see little pockets open up, little groups of restaurants suddenly start to thrive, art galleries open. Things do change. Spaces open up. And I think that if you can get people moving around downtown, you can actually activate the streets. Um, it, it's funny to look at these awful streetcar designs, which have been floating around, you know, when... The Italian plan. Right, 2007, they were having these meetings at the Downtown LA Neighborhood Council. Really no one was attending except people who were sitting on that board because downtown really wasn't a huge community. People weren't terribly active. They didn't understand that they had some power, and there's been so much churn in the last seven years. So many people have been priced out. It's just it's a completely different community. Um, And when they first put forward the modern hyper-modern, Italian-designed streetcars, people said, no, wait, aren't we getting the red car back? Wasn't that the point? Aren't they going to be cool, vintage, retro streetcars that look like these cool streetcars we've been looking at and all the photos that have been shared in the promotion of this notion? Oh, no, 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 those can't be um, handicap-accessible. I don't know, San Francisco's running them. They're running vintage trains. So now, public-private partnership is being floated to raise the additional money to pay for this... Streetcar, But, you know, very easy to brand these modern streetcars with uh, corporate logos, which is really not so cool for the photos that people are going to be looking at in 75 years. Kind of uncool, really.
1: Okay, Kim, that's okay. It's a side effects we're interested in. Intelligence is being brought back downtown. Kim, we're going to move on from the closely watched trains. We're going to move into some upcoming events. Um, Week next, Sunday... 14th of September, Brian Kaiser is going to be back at the old Robling wire cable building in the former lobby, what's now a, the back part of the building because the entrance is in the back now. This is the former lobby at 2nd and Alameda. He'll be back and he'll be talking about the Prussian mindset, <laughs> Ernst Bachelder and his work as a ceramic designer in pre-World War I Los Angeles, and uh, just being Brian Kaiser, I believe he will be coming in full Prussian military cavalry regalia.
0: If if it's cool enough, and of course this is the Angel City Brewery now, so come hear a lecture about this really interesting, unique, historic tile, which um, although Brian and we did not discover it, we contextualized it. It's been there for years, but it wasn't until we brought Brian Kaiser, expert on Southern California tile, and on Bachelder in specific, and on Prussian American history into that lobby that anyone understood exactly how unique and special these tiles that are created to memorialize and celebrate the work of the Roebling family in America, creators of the Brooklyn Bridge, among other things. So really, really cool. We did this once before, packed the room definitely. want. It's a small room, so you want to sign up. Reservations are required for this free love event. And afterwards, we'll all have some beer and talk history. So we'd love to see you there.
1: Right. And so again, this is this is what we do. The, the challenge to everything is you, you, you go into a space like the Roebling, former Roebling Lobby, and we've been in there before. It's like, oh, yeah, there's Bachelder tile there. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, they built the Brooklyn Bridge. Yeah, 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 yeah. But see, you don't have, I don't have, I don't have memorized every Bachelder tile catalog from 1910 through 19... 19- 29 No, you don't. I don't. Brian Kaiser does. But
0: you have other things in your head. Where, the, but
1: Kim, the point is You have is, Brian Kaiser's phone number. The the point the point is is that is that is that once we started doing work with Brian Kaiser, we we got back into Angel City Brewery and we were sitting there drinking a pint of beer and I said, "Oh my god, you know, we've got to get Brian here because I know that I just don't understand the context of this." And then You just get Brian there, and he's like, oh, my God, these were never made again. These are completely unique. No one's ever had these before. And that's...
0: Which means that it is a great corollary to the Dutch chocolate shop, another space we've taken Brian and a lot of people into over the last few years. Completely unique Bachelder tiles. So come and see them if you haven't seen them yet. You're going to love them.
1: So the takeaway for this digression is... The point of LAVA is the point of affecting positive social change. The point of LAVA is to connect and share information between highly specialized groups to the community at large. So these highly specialized groups can share their information and people can gain from it and, and positive social changes affect it, like the civil rights movement.
0: Sure. And then you will leave. Knowing a lot of things you didn't know about Ernest Bachelder, and the next time you see some really weird tile, you'll know to either call Brian or not paint it purple.
1: Yeah, don't um, don't don't paint your fireplace to match the walls. Just leave it, okay? Maybe don't even put don't even put a, a waterproofing on it. Just just call Brian. All right, Kim, um, la, uh, September Salon, uh, the 28th, uh, Lava Visionary of the Year talk.
0: Right. So, um, Mark Chevalier was named Lava Visionary of the Year at the beginning of this year. And, uh, our new policy is the Lava Visionary gives two talks. So he gave his introductory lecture and now he's going to give his secondary talk. And this is all new. And it's about the greatest tailors of menswear in old Hollywood. We're not even putting their names out. You're going to have to come to the talk to learn all about it. You're going to be so completely fascinated and enraptured by the work that Mark does. And we're going to celebrate his... visionariness. (laughs) So please join us. These events are always a lot of fun. They're free. They're upstairs at Figaro on Broadway. And uh, you can come down and and ogle all the unpleasant kitty litter that they've put in the streets as part of the road diet. And then come upstairs and and go back into the past and forget all the awful things they're doing to Broadway today. And celebrate what's great about it.
1: Thank you, Kim. Okay, so let's let's get to the interview. So we're going to interview Richard second. So I'll introduce him first. And then I'll introduce Emma. All right, so Richard is former president of Hollywood Heritage. Hollywood Heritage is this fundamental, important preservation group in Hollywood. They are across the street from the entrance to the Hollywood Bowl in the old Lansky Barn, which has been moved. It is now a museum. They're open Thursday through Sunday. We'll post their hours on the webpage for this podcast. They do screenings, they do parties, they do preservation outreach. They are just... They're 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 a force to be reckoned with in Hollywood. Thankfully, because they're the good guys, they are. They're doing they're doing some good work. And so we'll just go through and check in about Gromen's Chinese Theater, which which is, which is which is which is which is changed a little bit with this new ownership. And just we're just going to do a, an integrity check per Hollywood Heritage's standards, and 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 the check comes back good, thumbs up. So. We'll 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 get into that, and that's going to be just a nice stroll down memory lane for all the the, the reasons we love Groman's Chinese, and perhaps should even go see a movie. Oh, we saw a movie there right before they changed out. Right, they had the we saw the Godfather there. Yeah, right before they yeah yeah. So go see a movie there. Why not? Think about Nathaniel West and and, and be happy. First interview is with Emma Roberts. Emma is the rare books librarian for the Los Angeles Public Library. She is located where the Rare Book Collection is at the Central Library. She is stationed uh, on the second floor at the Arts Desk. That is that is where you'll find her when she's on duty. Um, she's going to walk us through some other great gems in the collection. They're a lot of fun, and um, you should go. The, the, we're, we're doing this so people get inspired to make an appointment to go look at a Rare Book in the Rare Book Collection, because everyone should, because it's it's a great asset.
0: If you make an appointment with Emma, please look at at least four books. Not one. Even if there's just one you really want to see, have her pull a few. It's worth it.
1: Very good. And so with that, let's take it away with my interview with Emma. <laughs> Emma, I'm here with you in the rare books room at Central Library. This is the, uh, one of the last spaces... That is part of the original Goodhue Library, the original Central Library. This is not a public space, but if you get a reservation, an appointment to look at a book, you can come in here. So why don't, we, why don't you introduce yourself and remind us, because you already, we, we, we interviewed you a while back, remind us how you can access rare books.
3: Yes, yeah, sure. Um, my name Emma and I'm a librarian at Central Library. I work in the art and music department, but part of my job is also to look after the Rare Books department and its collections. And um, everything in the collection is available to everyone. And... Um, And by that, I mean our books are catalogued, our magazines and periodicals are catalogued. And anything that you find in the catalog when you're browsing at home um, that you see is held in Rare Books. Um, You can make an appointment to see. All you have to do is phone me or email me and um, I'll get back to you within a day or two usually. And we'll set up a time for you and you can come and have a look at the items. Um, Yeah, so it's very easy and accessible to everyone.
1: For those of, of us who really want to make sure they're in this room, they should know that some of the books, for instance, Nathan Marsak and I often torture you by having you pull us up lots of books, and we, we, we just scan all these photos of 19th century buildings, much to your dismay. But we do it on the second floor. Yeah. So, so not, not everything. When you make an appointment, you're not guaranteed people to 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 look at them in in this room
3: now unfortunately that's the case um nearly all of our appointments are held in the art and music department on the second floor and that's really just because of of staff time limitations we want you to be able to have the maximum amount of time with the material and we can't offer that up here unfortunately um but uh as i said it's 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 very straightforward to make an appointment and um i will get back to you quickly
1: Perfect, perfect. We've got uh, a couple different thing. A different we have books to look at today. A uh, couple different buckets therein. Charles Fletcher Lummis was an early librarian at the city of Los Angeles, and you're going to show us a book which, which he had had a lot to do. Well, he show us this book and tell us why. Why I'm I'm talking about uh, Charles Fletcher Lummis. Mm-hmm.
3: Yes, he was our city librarian. He started in 1905 as a city librarian. And one of the, um, one of the lasting um, impressions of his being here is the branding of the books. And um, the story goes that he was really concerned about staff walking off with library books, and that's why it happened. But he he ordered that every single book should be branded across the top of the pages so that it, you can see it when you are holding the book in your hand and it's not open, and it says La Pub Library, and it's is literally singed into the edges of the pages of the books.
1: And and the the idea that he at least perpetuated it was the notion of, of of a branding iron like like cattle.
3: Exactly, it's a very Western. Idea, so it's it's really appropriate, but um, very unusual in the library world.
1: <laughs> I, I think that pretty much describes Charles Fletcher Lummis. Fantastic, I love it. Uh, people, okay, maybe and and so if you get a book from your Books, keep an eye out for this. This is not something you. This is not in the cat. This is not information in the catalog. So you no. you kind of have you have, you have to. Kind of, kind of know a rare books librarian to get yeah. to get to look at the. Okay, <laughs> keep that in mind. All right, our next book, our next book is uh, about my hero, Charles Bukowski. It's a, it's a book book by him. It it uh, the the book is it catches my heart in its hands. And gosh, this is this is a, this is a stunning book. Let's let's we you're opening it. There are all these wonderful. Look at this. This is gorgeous. The uh, Lujan, it's signed, Charles Bukowski, 527-63. Uh, uh, so this is, this is Lujan Lujon Press. There are a couple out of New Orleans, and uh, Bukowski went out several, many, I think four or five visits to get this. They printed. The husband learned printmaking while doing time in a state penitentiary penitentiary in uh, Illinois and they printed this and and hung it to dry in their bathroom let's keep going, this is beautiful so we have all these wonderful colored pages that are stepped in this is gorgeous, each poem is a page, red ochre, blue this is gorgeous this is absolutely gorgeous yep and there's the wonderful essay Charles Bukowski in Mid-Flight. This is a very famous essay. Oh, this is a stunning book. So those of you that are Bukowski fans, this is a uh, this is definitely a, a a must. Let's find the first poem. I forget what the first poem is. Let's just turn the page. The Tragedy of the Leaves. Here's a drawing. Here's a, a, a the handwritten poem with a drawing to illustrate it. The tragedy of the leaves I awakened to dryness, and the ferns were dead. The potted plants, yellow as corn. My woman was gone, and the empty bottles, like blood corpses, surrounded me with their uselessness. The sun was still good, though, and my landlady's note cracked in fine and undemanding yellowness. What was needed now was a good comedian, ancient style, a jester, with jokes upon absurd pain. Pain is absurd because it exists. Nothing more. <laughs> that's that's a beautiful poem. So, people uh, can make an appointment to look at this book. This is this is great. They also, uh, Crucifix and a Death Hand was the next collection of poems they printed by him, and it is equally as stunning. And I think it's. I think technically it's a little, even a little more sophisticated. I think. I think. I, I remember the last time I was here looking at it. It's. Mm. It's. Yeah. So, good. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. So that's good. And then, and then everything else is going to fall into the Californiana bucket. I think. So let's. So show us. Show us what we've got here.
3: Well, I guess I'll go back in time. Um, the first thing I brought to show you is something that looks very ordinary from the outside. And as you turn the pages, um, you see that it's all handwritten. And what this is, is it's a little composition book. And it's a diary of a Los Angeles lady. And it begins in January 1908. And it continues for a couple of years in tiny handwriting, squeezed onto each page. She just writes a few lines every day, telling us what she was up to. And it's just a fascinating Glimpse into ordinary life in Los Angeles in 1908 to 190 till 1910, and she talks about very sort of ordinary things, going to the market. She goes downtown a lot. Went downtown today. Did this, did that. Um, and she talks about going to uh, Pasadena. She talks about going to the library and getting fines. Um, it's, it's just really, really interesting, um, as a sna- sort of snapshot of the time from just an ordinary person. And, uh, it's splodged with ink all the way through. Um, and there's lots of uh, sort of bits of gossip about friends and who's come over and who they haven't, who she hasn't seen for a while. Um, so I, I just think it's a fascinating document. Um, I don't know who she was. I don't know very much other than um, what we can ascertain from the document itself. But we have actually had some interest in it. A lady a couple of years ago who's a genealogist spotted it in the catalogue. It's a very thin catalogue record, not not giving away very much, and asked to see it and really fell in love with it and um, spent many months transcribing it. (laughs) Um, So I hope that one day we can make it available online as something that is um, a great document of LA life.
1: Yes. 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 Please keep us posted. That's This is gorgeous. This is just, this is, this is beautiful. So the, let's, do you, do you want to describe the, the paper? Because it's a very old fashioned, um, looks like a very old fashioned lined paper.
3: Yeah, it looks it looks like something like a composition book, but it's it's old fashioned. It's sort of thin uh, paper with with ruled lines, sort of like what you used to use at school. Um, and it's got num- page numbers in the top corner. so it's very sort of utilitarian and 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 ordinary. And it's just so well loved. I mean, she just squeezed so much onto every page. The handwriting actually seems to get smaller as you go through and then at the back um of the book she's she's sort of scribbled some recipes for salad dressing and things like that on the inside cover um in several recipes for salad dressing so she was really trying to perfect that and um it's just really personal and I wish we I wish we knew more about who she was and um hopefully um as I mentioned the the lady that transcribed it will will be able to bring some of that to life for us.
1: Wonderful, wonderful. What, what do we have next?
3: Okay, next is, is another handwritten item, actually, as it happens. Um, and this is something um, which is requested by people from all over the world, um, particularly France, because it is what we refer to as the Ernest de Massey manuscript. It's the, the story of a voyage um, from France to California, in 1849 to 50, and um, it's as I said, it's handwritten. It's actually been copied from the original journal, so the, this copy we think is probably from a, probably about the same time as the, as the diary I just was talking about in the early part of, uh, but round 1905, something like that, um, possibly 1908. I've read. Um, so it's in French and it 's very beautiful handwriting all the way through again it's mm-hmm. it 's ruled pages, but it 's big it 's very big and dense um, and this is a one of our top candidates for digitization because it 's handwritten the ink is fading all the time, and it 's the only one so we have to we really really have to preserve it and as i mentioned we 've had several scholars from France look at it, photograph it um, And um, it's one of the items that's requested regularly.
1: It's gorgeous. Thank you. That's gorgeous. Um, I think we have time for one or two more. So what's, I see we have a couple books still on the table. Pick, pick, what's, what's the first What? Okay. Ooh, ooh, cookery.
3: Yes. Um, cookery is one of the areas that's well represented in the rare books collection. We have a huge collection of cookbooks. We have a huge menu collection, which is online. You can browse, which is very fun. And we have culinary ephemera as well. And this is one of the earliest items we have that has to do with Los Angeles. It's just called Los Angeles cookery. It's from 1881. And it was published by Mirror Printing and Binding House. And it's, it's thought to be the first cookbook printed in Los Angeles. Um, it was published by the Ladies Aid Society to raise funds um, for their church, and it, it's it's just their favorite recipes, as lots of these kinds of books are. Um, it goes through, you know, sort of uh, soups and then main dishes and then lots of cakes and desserts, and um, some of them are, are you know, things that we would have today and others are are kind of more unusual. Um, I thought I'd read you. They're, They're very short, a lot of them. There's one here for ham sandwiches, which I thought was hilarious. There was a recipe for ham sandwiches. But then when I started reading it, it became even more odd. It says five pounds of cold boiled ham and two fresh beef tongues chopped together very fine in italics. Then add one teaspoonful dry mustard one tablespoonful white sugar one teaspoonful pepper moisten the meat by stirring into it two well-beaten eggs spread between thin slices of buttered bread this quantity will make 100 sandwiches (laughs) so sounds kind of not that appetizing but just a very different way of making ham sandwiches from from 1881 (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Uh, I think we have time for one one more book. So, what's what's one last book you want to show us in this bucket of Californiana?
3: Well, we've kind of gone full circle because we're going all the way back now to 1701 to one of the items that Lummis collected for the library, and we have one of the reasons we have such a great collection of, of Californiana is because of Lummis because he purchased books that were kind of affordable at the time. There wasn't as much interest, and he snapped up several really important things, and this is one of them. And it's um, an account that comes from um, Francisco Maria Piccolo, and it's it's known as Piccolo's Informe. And it has to do... It's basically a report from a mission and, um, in Baja, California, and it dates from 1701. And it's quite, a, it's quite a short document, and it's addressed to Philip V. Um, after Charles II's death, um, the new king was, was more enthusiastic and encouraging about the missions, and um, there, there was more uh, money um, being given and more encouragement, and, um, which was great because the Jesuits had, had started doing it anyway even though they weren't being encouraged before um so he the the new king had um requested reports from about what was going on at the missions and that's what this is it's it's um letting him know what they're doing how successful they are and um it it sort of talks a lot about the you know the wonderful fertile soil and how you know life is is just fantastic in Baja California at this time and it's 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 a very important document and it's it's what has always been um recorded here at the library is that it's the first printed account of california so
1: that's uh, that's a non-trivial
3: statement right exactly
1: that's wow that's i love it that's fantastic i want to thank you for showing us these books i want to thank you for your time this is a great room this is this is this is great again, remind people how, if they are um, sitting in bed looking at their tablet and they notice a book in the on the online catalog being listed as rare books. remind them what the next step is if they decide they they need to look at this book
3: yes the the next step is just to call or to email and you'll find that information there on the website and um Whichever is easiest for you. Let us know what you found and, and what you're interested in. We, we do need to know specifics um, so that we can pull them for you, so that I can pull them for you. Um, if you're not really sure what you're looking for, but you know you'd like to see something, um, I'd encourage you to seek out the help of the subject. Staff here at Central Library you know, think about the, the kind of topic that you're interested in and um, give us a call and we'll put you through to the, to the experts in that area and they can help you um, refine a search um, to try and find things. Not, as I said, not everything we have is, is old and therefore rare. We have new things that are rare and so it, it really, it's a, it's a very mixed collection. Yeah.
1: Emma, thank you for talking to us.
3: You're welcome. It's my pleasure. My name is Jean Ryan. I'm at the Antelope Valley California Poppy Reserve, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
1: Richard, I'm here with you. We're at the Hollywood Heritage Museum. And I want you, first of all, to introduce yourself properly, your position in Hollywood Heritage, and tell us about this
4: great museum, which we're sitting in the middle of, and how people can visit. Great. I'm Richard Adkins. I'm the Vice President of Hollywood Heritage Incorporated, which is a non-profit historical preservation organization. And we're the owners of this building, which is the, uh, the lasky de Mill Barn, which was built in 1901 as a horse barn, but then became a film studio starting in 1913, and uh, eventually became the home of Paramount Pictures. Perfect. Today, we're going to talk about, uh, last time we talked to you, we talked
1: about the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. This is, we're going to talk today about a building kitty corner to that, the Gramman's Chinese Theater. So to do that, um, we've agreed uh, you're going to tell us a little bit about Sid Gramman as a motion picture promoter and a motion picture exhibitor and just what he brought to Hollywood in, in, in
4: the mid-20s with, with his theaters there. Well, Sid Grumman was a very interesting guy. One of the earliest promotions I know of is that uh, his family owned a theater in San Francisco uh, during the earthquake, and they built a. After the earthquake was over, they built a tent and put a sign outside that said, "Come and see the movies here, and nothing will fall on you." So, this is a guy that clearly was attuned to promotion. And uh, he'd already built one major theater in Hollywood. He had built the Egyptian Theater in 1922. And the, uh, Grumman was very much of the mindset that going to the movies needed to be a completely otherworldly experience, that you need to be removed from your everyday existence so that your experience of a theater started at the, at the curb and changed as you went in. Uh, so that the, the Chinese and the Egyptian are built in that particular manner. He, the Egyptian specifically is the first theater to have that long courtyard, So that, and they used to put displays out in the courtyard having to do with the, the movie that was being exhibited at the time, and it's the location of one of the first uh, big deal late night premieres with skylights and all that kind of thing that now we just think of as normal, but that's Sid Grumman's idea. Sid Grumman's other idea, of course, is the, the hand and the footprints at, at the theater, which, of were a mistake. The first light impressions were made by Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford when they came across the street from their building to look at Sid's as he was building his and stepped into you know almost dry cement and made light impressions. And Sid thought this is a great idea and he was gonna you know had them redo it a couple of weeks later and included Norma Talmadge, and they all put their their hands and footprints in freshment as well as studying their signature. But one of my favorite things, of course, that in addition to hand and footprints, there's also Betty Grable's legs, Jimmy Durante's nose, Jerry Brown's mouth. Uh, it's just, there's lots of body parts that have been memorialized in the forecourt of the Chinese. One of the more interesting details of when it was originally built is that there was actually originally a roof garden on the Chinese and that there was a, a club on that level. The other thing that I also find was fascinating is that at some point, of course, it became kind of a crowd scene doing the hand and footprints out in front of the theater. So they thought to have a little more control as well as to get people into the theater. At one point, they were actually doing the cement blocks inside on the stage of the theater. Gina Harlow, for instance, you'll see if you're into Gina Harlow memorabilia, there are two postcards, one showing her in a, black, in a black dress out in the forecourt, and there's another photograph of her in a white dress inside the theater. And the inside of the theater footprints were the ones that were done first. But when they tried transporting them, the, you know, the nearly wet cement from inside the theater to outside, the block broke. So that pretty much ended the idea that, we can't really do these inside. Even though we can get people in all these seats, we're going to continue doing them outside, and that's why they're done outside.
1: That's that's very interesting.
4: Um, I want want you to
1: wrap this up with – we're not going to wrap up yet, but the the last thing we'll talk about is Guarman's Chinese Today. Hollywood heritage has been intrinsically involved in, and in it's 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 current. Uh, there was an ownership change. There's been a lot of work. Every you're very much on board with all that. We'll we'll get to that. I, I I put that on the table first because I want you to talk about the notion of of what has happened to. We just mentioned the Egyptian. What has happened in the '60s to, with uh, with big screens and its impact on on the Egyptian theater.
4: Well, there were several things that happened to impact the, the theaters on the boulevard. Initially, of course, the theaters used to be owned by the movie companies themselves, or a great deal of them. Uh, and that changed in the 1940s with the Supreme Court decision which said that the movie studios could no longer own their own theaters. So that the theaters actually changed hands. And then no longer having this absolute, you're always going to know that you're going to get a picture, different picture every weekend from a quality house. Suddenly, there are opening bidding opportunities for the new owners of the theaters. And now, at the same time, of course, television and radio have eroded a little bit of the movie maker's market, so that competing for the movie ticket dollars is a much more difficult process, so that movie makers began doing things like widescreen and 3D, and then, of course, later on, smell and lots of other kinds <laughs> of very odd. Uh, at one point, for *Do the tingler, they actually put motion detectors in the seats so that you would tingle during the tingler, um, so that... The historic theaters along Hollywood Boulevard, which include, of course, the Pantages and the Warner Pacific and the Egyptian and the Chinese, all had their their screens resized so they could accommodate this more modern uh, technique. They also had their exteriors altered, and that when Hollywood Boulevard was initially developed in the 1920s, it was more of a street that people walked down rather than drove down. But as they took away the red cars and Hollywood Boulevard became more about cars, the theater owners wanted their, their signage to be flushed to the street so that marquees were either added or changed so that both the, the Egyptians got a rather large kind of contour modern uh, marquee. And then they put neon dragons across the uh, front of the Chinese as well. So changes had been occurring you know, throughout the uh, 50s and even into the 60s In the 60s like, the Egyptian had actually maintained its its proscenium for a very long time, but then got changed in 1966 for a screening of Hello, Dolly! So change was inevitable. Uh, recently, the Chinese changed hands, and they wanted to be able to uh, turn it into an IMAX. Now, in order to do so, because it's a national Register district, they had to run the plans by Hollywood Heritage. When we looked at the plans, everything that they had projected... Affected a part of the theater that had been changed 30 years ago to begin with. The the, the, rag of the floor, the proscenium was already gone, so the large screen was not really an issue. The the large screen actually the the IMAX wasn't any higher screens it wasn't any higher than the regular screen, but it was lower than. But in the in the forties they had taken out the orchestra pit, so that was already gone. So there was no orchestra pit to save, it was supported concrete. So that we certainly were okay with them removing the concrete in order to be able to put the larger IMAX screen in. What's also important is that no no original part of the theater was altered or changed during the process of putting in the IMAX equipment. All that changes, of course, they had to have different seats because they needed stadium style seating. But again, those are not the original 1927 seats that were in it anyway. So that it it, what the important part of of one of the important elements of preservation is that it's you can't just say we we have to save this old building whether it's practical or not. At some point, the building has to have a life, an economic life that protects its ability to remain uh, and have viable building into the future as well. So that this particular uh, change of the Chinese to the IMAX, not only makes it one of the largest IMAX theaters in the country, but when people go to this particular IMAX theater, they'll be able to see one of the grand theaters of the 1920s. Perfect.
1: I want you to leave us with, with, uh, with an anecdote. I want you to leave us with an anecdote about your favorite anecdote about the theater. I want people to go to pig and whistle for dinner and go see a movie at, at the Chinese Gromman's Chinese afterwards. So I just want you to give them a, a, a meditation point, an anecdote as, as, as their meditation point as, as, as they plan
4: this evening in Hollywood, as, as
1: it would have been in the good old days.
4: My actual favorite anecdote about the Chinese is when Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell were putting their hand and feet print in the cement to commemorate the Gentleman Prefer Blondes. Marilyn turned to Jane Russell and said, you know what they'd really like? They'd really like for you to sit in it and me to lean into it.
1: God bless you, Richard. It's a very good anecdote. I will pers- that's going to be an important meditation for me in the coming weeks. I want to thank you for talking to us, and, and we look forward to having
4: you back. Thank you very much. My name is Tom Lasher. I'm here in Los Alamitos, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
1: And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of September 8th, 2014. Our guests this week are Emma Roberts. She's a rare books librarian. She's the rare books librarian at the Los Angeles Public Library. We'll also talk with Richard Adkin. He is former president of Hollywood Heritage, and we talked to him about Grauman's Chinese Theater, that iconic vision of old Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard. I want to thank everyone for listening. I'm going to let Kim remind you how to send us feedback because because we love feedback because as we sit at our desks trying to compile the latest style sheets for the revamp of our website, we pray that we can get that bourbon library to compile. Uh I, I'm always heartened by feedback we get it. It it makes me laugh and it makes makes my burden of of, of getting the sash sheets to compile, and and get the website looking better. So, Kim, tell us how you can write to us and and keep me functioning.
0: Yeah, Richard was using the royal way there. I have nothing to do with that. But it is nice to hear from our listeners, and you can contact us by emailing. You can at sunshine at gmail.com. or going through the contact link at www.esoturic.com. You can come and see us on an Esoturic bus adventure. And You know, we do kind of do this podcast to promote our bus tour company, so maybe you would like to get on the bus. You can also come to one of the free lava events like the Lava Sunday Salons and frequent free walking tours that follow or the Roebling Building Tour with uh, Brian Kaiser. Or we have paid lava events that we host as well, like the Crime Lab Seminars Mm -hmm. at Cal State Los Angeles. The next one is All Historic Crimes, and it's coming up in November. So, uh, yeah, just generally... Let us know what you think. If you really dig the show, you can leave some stars on the iTunes page related to it. And uh, just generally, stay in touch. If we'd like to hear from you.
4: Okay,
1: so. Oh. Yeah, so, okay, so pick up the sheet. Good. Kim, you're going to take us home. You're going to tell us about some upcoming bus tours. And then we can, then we can thank everyone again and we can sign off.
0: That I can do. Hey, Weird West Adams is coming up. It's a crime bus tour. It's on September 13th, and we're adding something new. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah.
0: We are adding something new to this tour of the um, residential districts that sprung up in the teens and the 20s. And they're mostly, uh, well, they're, they're west of downtown, south of the 10 freeway. It's a whole little pocket of micro neighborhoods with a lot of cool history. We'll go to Rosedale Cemetery. We'll talk about some murders. We'll talk about some oddities and some accidents and some some odd circumstances that probably remained in people's memories for quite a while, and we've just made a slight adjustment to our route um, in order to take in some cool Queen Anne Victorian-style homes, and I just decided to see if there had been any crime on this block, and it turns out there's a doozy, yeah. so uh, yeah. we, have, we, have, we have a pretty freaky 1960s murder a little late for us, but I think you're going to like it, so... If you've been wanting to take that tour, this is a good time to take it. The following Saturday, the 20th of September, is Eastside Babylon, my most unhinged crime bus tour, taking in neighborhoods like East Los Angeles, Commerce, Montebello, Boyle Heights, and um, cemetery that we visit on that tour is evergreen. We'll be talking about the Night Stalker. We'll be talking about the radio shop murders, which are completely chilling and horrifying, and one of my favorite cases I've ever done deep and abiding research into. And, and we're going to even take you out for milk and cookies because, believe you me, we're, you're going to need it. September the 27th, Pasadena yeah, Confidential. Yeah, we, we, we do
1: two milk and cookies. Yeah, time. we
0: have to. Pasadena Confidential without Crime by the Clown, an addition of to that tour without a clown. So if you're a clown scared, it's a good time for you to get on the bus. We're making some adjustments to this tour as well. This is a tour that includes... Oh. Um, Rich is laughing hysterically. This is a tour that includes rocket scientists run amok... Poorly behaved large pets, inappropriate pets, black magic, presidential assassins, uh, school shootings by the last person you'd expect to be doing a school shooting, uh, and Rose Queens, of course. So uh, we, we have a very interesting historic house that we're adding to this tour with some pretty daffy stories associated with it. It, it, it is a house that is um, blessed, is blessed with over a century of just inspired, visionary daffiness. And, and I think you would love to see it, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to taking people there. On the 4th of October, it is the debut of my first new crime bus tour in, lo these five years. It is the Echo Park Book of the Dead. Um, and I don't want to tell you too much about it. I'll simply say I have some cases that I'm very excited about. We have some locations you will find beguiling and captivating. And I think this is a part of town that a lot of people have a, a deep emotional attachment with, but they may not have the uh, historical context for these older cases. And I think, I think this is going to really put a new dimension on the face of not just Echo Park, but Silver Lake, a little bit of Los Feliz, Elysian Park. Um, we're going to change the way you feel about these neighborhoods. So get on that bus if you're curious about old local history and you want to see some beautiful, horrible things. The Real Black Dahlia is October the 11th. It is our most popular crime bus tour where we ask not who killed Bess Short, although you kind of can't help but ask that, but, but who she was and why the heck you should care all these years later about this drifter from the Boston area who was picked up by the wrong person in early 1947, ended up murdered and cut in half on a vacant lot down in Lambert Park and um, started what remains really the most notorious murder in L.A. history and and perhaps in American history, our Jack the Ripper case, if you will. Uh, That tour is always very emotional and evocative, and we'd love to take you out and and show you the locations in downtown and Lumber Park that figure into it. On October the 18th, we have Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles, one of Richard's literary tours of downtown and Hollywood, and uh, some really astonishingly lovely locations and real places and people who inspired Chandler's work. We're also doing a special edition of that tour for the Khan Mystery Convention the following month, which is leaving from and returning to Long Beach. If you know anyone who's coming out for the convention, direct them to our website and uh, they can come out and see the mysterious world of Raymond Chandler and the company of mystery writers and fans. And then at the end of October, Also something new on the calendar, because it's been off the calendar for about five years, one of our early and quite unhinged Crime Bus Tours Wild Wild West Side is coming back. It is a tour about abused children, cults, acid freakouts, and the grade 11 case, the same case that inspired my novel, The Kept Girl. So, um... Very much looking forward to going back and revisiting some of these locations that we haven't been to in such a long time. Hopefully, none of the historic stuff's been knocked down. We got to go drive it this. Ha- it hasn't. Kim. It hasn't. No. Okay, we're gonna go drive this thing. Um, I, we, I've driven it. <laughs> you drove it without it's, me. It, oh. it's, we've driven it,
1: Kim. It's fine.
0: I didn't know we were driving the route. I thought we were just driving around. Anyway, so that brings us up through October and, and November too, because I mentioned the Bouchercon thing, and uh, we'd love to see you on the bus. So don't be a stranger.
1: They. Dame- Kim, thank you Thank you for bringing us home I want to thank everyone for once again Listening to our podcast for this week I want to encourage you to continue To listen to our podcast And I want to remind you
0: You can't eat the sunshine You can't
2: eat the sunshine But you can make a beeline For the best of the coastline La 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 Skid Row Solano Canyon, the door In the long lost neighborhood Called Herbina between South Pass and Highland Heart Grand Central Park It is divine You can't eat the sunshine But it's a gold mine